Good morning. Volume good, okay? Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter three. Let's begin reading together there in verse one. Paul writes. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus's and Jambres's folly was also. Let's pray. Father, as our brother prayed just a few moments ago, Lord, we, we need you, Lord. As we sit today with our Bibles open in front of us, and you remind us again of what it means to live in these last days, and as you instruct us on what to do. We need the encouragement, Lord, that you gave to young Timothy through Paul. So do that, Lord. Lift our eyes again to our hope who is seated at the 
right hand of the Father in heaven. We have no other but you, Lord. Amen. As we continue this morning in our sermon series through 2 Timothy, and we've come to chapter 3, we want to take a, a moment just to kind of reorient ourselves to the context in which Paul is writing. We want to keep in mind again that this is a letter, it's written to a young pastor. We know that. We know that the letter was intended to be read to the church in Ephesus, but we really want to be reminded again that this is also the letter of a father to a son. And not just a uh, just a biological father, not a biological father, but Paul had become a spiritual father to Timothy. Remember, he wrote in verse two of this letter, he said to Timothy, my beloved son. Not only that, but as this father writes to his son, he, he does so in the belief that he, Paul, will soon die. Remember, he's in prison, and by the end of the letter in, in verse 6 of chapter 4, Paul, he's, he's going to write these words. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He sees that the end is near, and the reality of impending death does something in your life. It heightens your awareness to the need and the desire to tell your children what really matters and what you really want for them and what you really want them to know. I think most everyone, at least our church members, is, is aware that my father went to be with the Lord three months ago and the last thing that my father ever gave me was actually this Bible. And it was kind of a, it was like a birthday slash graduation thing. And I was talking to my dad and he said, you know, I want to, I think I'm going to get a new Bible. And he, he said, son, I'm, I'm going to get that for you. And uh, in the front of this Bible, he, he wrote a short letter uh, to me and he wrote to his son. And one of the things that he wrote uh, is this line. He said, use all you can for the Lord. see my dad with his spiritual senses heightened by the awareness that he would soon die, his urge and his desire, the thing that was weighing on him for his son is the desire that his son would finish strong. It was, the, it was the desire that his son's life would be marked by using, he said, use all you can for the Lord. This is Paul's desire for his son. That the Jesus, his son Timothy, believed and hoped in would mark his life. That Timothy would not be ashamed of Paul or his gospel, but that he would join Paul in suffering. He wants Timothy to hold fast to God's word and to sound doctrine and to endure hardship and to fulfill his ministry, to fight the good fight, 
to finish the course and to keep the faith so that Timothy would also receive the crown of righteousness which the Lord will award to all who have loved his appearing. He wants Timothy to finish strong. It's one of the major thrusts behind this letter. So as, as we come then to chapter three, this next section of scripture, verse one begins with the word, but... And it's introducing something of a contrast to the previous verses. Whereas in those previous verses, Paul, he he had told Timothy that there are those who are in opposition to the truth that, that he is to patiently deal with, to patiently correct in gentleness in the hopes that they would come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Paul seeks now to give Timothy a reminder of what is ahead of him as he continues faithful gospel ministry in this world. And this is important because as Paul, his desire is for Timothy to finish strong, to finish well, to fulfill his ministry. And so he seeks to prepare him by telling him what is ahead and how to deal with it and where his hope ought to lay. So we have three points this morning. The first is Paul's reminder to Timothy. That's gonna be verses one through five. The second is Paul's exhortation to Timothy, and that'll be verses five through eight. And then the third is Paul's encouragement to Timothy in verse nine. So three points, a reminder, an exhortation, and an encouragement. That's where we're going this morning. So let's begin there first again in verse one. He says, but realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you read the words last days. That may make you think of Kirk Cameron, for all I know. For a long time, it would have made me think of Kirk Cameron. I still do, yeah, can't, can't break away from that. Um, but the phrase last days is present all throughout the New Testament. And it's indicative of the period of time between the first and second coming of Christ. In Acts 2.17, in explaining the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Peter, he quotes the Old Testament prophet Joel saying, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. In other words, at Pentecost, the last days had begun and they were living in those last days. And it was in accord with the pouring out of God's spirit, which he had said he would do in those days. In James 5.3, James writes to those in his day who had wrongly, they were hoarding their money and, and, and he says that they had done so in the last days. He's like, you fools, don't you realize we're living in the last days? His understanding was that they were in those days. The writer of Hebrews tells us that in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. See, in the coming of Christ, as the final and definitive revelation of God, the last days had begun. We're in those days. Paul had written to Timothy in his previous letter in chapter four of the latter times, he said, in which some would fall away. And then he went on to explain how they were to live in the midst of those latter times or last days. Here, and 
you're, you're, you're not missing it. It's, it's a few, those are future tenses. He, he says this is what will come. But it's as though Paul, he tells Timothy that the, in the last days, difficult times will come, and then he describes those days and the men in those days, and then he tells Timothy, open your eyes and realize that those men are right in front of you. It's a reminder to Timothy that he and the church are living in those last days. They were then right there in front of them. And they're difficult days specifically because the people in those days are difficult. Paul gives around 18 or 19 descriptors, characteristics of the kind of men that will be present in the last days. And so as as a means of reminding Timothy of what is ahead in gospel ministry, look at this description of these men. Men in the last days will be lovers of self. Their devotion is to themselves. Their allegiance is to themselves. Their hearts are oriented to satisfying their own desires. He says also they're lovers of money. Money is the thing that they set their hope on. You remember Paul, he had written to Timothy previously and he told him to instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all good things to enjoy. These end time men, they hope in their wealth and they use it to serve themselves. They're boastful and arrogant. They're proud of their wisdom. They're proud of their, of their accomplishments. They're proud of what they can do. They boast about it. They're revilers. If you try to tell them different, they'll revile you. They'll revile God. He says they're disobedient to parents. You might not think that that one is such a big deal that it would be on this kind of a list, but contrary to John Hughes' films, disobedience to parents and conflict with your parents ought not to be the norm. It's a distortion of God's design. He also says there that they're ungrateful. You know what this is. It's, you're, you're all too familiar with the examples of selfish and entitlement and the tantrums that people will sometimes throw when their desires are unmet. You can get on the internet. You can see videos of people sitting on the floor in airports screaming. The ungrateful don't care what others have sacrificed for them. The ungrateful never give a thought to the fact that the Lord has given them every blessing and kindness that they've ever known. Paul also says there that they're, they're unholy. There's nothing set apart to God about these people. Their lives look exactly like those Christ has denounced and upon whom he has promised judgment. They're unloving. Paul, he's already told us that they, what they do love, which is money in themselves, what they don't love is God or anyone else. He says also there, look there, they're recon irreconcilable, irreconcilable. They will not allow you to make peace with them. No matter how gently you correct 
or how patient you are when wronged. Their persistent sinful words, actions, and belief make peace with them impossible. They literally will not allow it. He says also, they're, they're malicious gossips. They will lie to you. They will lie about you. They will tell you things about other people for the purpose of hurting you or hurting them. Their words are focused on furthering their own agenda and their own purposes at the expense of everyone and anyone. They lack self-control, he says. And they may modify their behavior temporarily. They may act appropriately in public when needed. It's all to get what they want, possibly to avoid punishment, but ultimately they're lovers of self and they're ruled by their sinful desires. They refuse to hold back from what they want. Look there also, he says, they're brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless. These people are dangerous. Somebody's got a baseball bat in their hand and they're a reckless person. You don't want to go near them. They hurt those who get near them. They're not interested in righteousness or what could give life and peace to others. They'll turn on you. They'll betray you. They will swing recklessly and leave a trail of carnage in their wake without any thought. He says also there in verse four, they're conceited. They're impressed with themselves. They know more than, than everyone else. They're not interested in being instructed or told what to do or corrected, but they'll instruct you. They'll tell you your error. They'll show you where you're wrong. They'll hold the Bible in your face and justify their sin. They're conceited. He says also they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Just, just like what Paul started with this section, he points out again, they're, they're misplaced love. They don't love God. They love pleasure. They love their own self-gratification. They live according to their carnal appetites and their God is their, is their belly. And perhaps most shocking, he says in verse five, maybe really, really shocking, he says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. These men are actually holding to a form of godliness. They're professing to be Christians. They're even engaging in the outward form of the Christian faith. If we just pause for a second, that ought to scare us. That ought to, in, in and of itself, that in and of itself ought to cause our little radars to go up and, and cause us to realize we've got to keep our eyes open. They're professing to be Christians and yet they have denied the power 
of true and genuine religion. In other words, regardless of what they're professing with their mouths, they lack any of the spirit-wrought transformative power that makes a genuine believer and a new creation. You see, the form of godliness that embraces God's power looks like this. When a person hears the news that a good and righteous and loving God, the one who created them and before whom they stand is guilty, that this God sent his son into the world to be the sin bearer for his people so that through his sinless life, they, might, they may by faith receive the credit for his righteousness and that through his atoning death on the cross, they may by faith receive the forgiveness of sins with Jesus as their sin bearer and that by his resurrection, God has given the assurance that this sacrifice has been accepted and that all who trust in the Lord will themselves be raised from the dead and forever set free from death and forever reconciled to the living God. That good news, the gospel, when that good news is genuinely and truly embraced with spirit-wrought faith, that person becomes a new creation and their lives are forever marked by a change away from everything Paul just listed. And your heart is set on a trajectory that is Godward and, and Christward. These men, the men that Paul is talking about, they profess Christ. They say, yeah, all that, I believe all that. And they hold to a form of godliness, but there's no evidence of the gospel's power in their life. They deny it by their very existence. They would rather live for sin and self, seeking their own ends, gratifying their own desires without any care for anyone else. And they want to hold a form of godliness, a form. Paul wants Timothy to finish strong and he, he wants him to know what is ahead. What kind of men are you going to encounter as you move forward as a Christian in this world, as you move forward in gospel ministry, Timothy? Brothers and sisters, what... what what ought we to expect in these last days? As we read down that list, are, are you not struck by how vivid and detailed of a picture that that is of our own day? It's as though a mirror has been held up to the world in 2023. Not just that, it's, it's like a mirror has been held up to the United States of America. And not only that, it, it's, it's like a mirror has been held up to Memphis, Tennessee. Not, not only that, it's, it's like a mirror has been held up that shows many of the people we know personally, people perhaps with whom we work, maybe people in our families who profess the name of Christ and yet whose lives are marked by holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Not only that, perhaps it's a mirror being held up in front of you this morning. I 
Is your life marked by the reality of God's life-transforming presence? True faith, genuine repentance. Paul wants Timothy to realize, he wants the church to realize that in the last days, difficult times will come. This is what's ahead. And Paul wants Timothy to finish strong. And so he reminds him of what is ahead in gospel ministry. And now moving on to our second point in this next section, Paul tells Timothy how to respond to these men and why. This is Paul's exhortation to Timothy. Look there at the end of verse five. Paul writes, he says, avoid such men as these. Avoid these men. Avoid these men who who hold to a form of godliness and yet their lives are marked by unholiness. They're pretenders these brutal men, these lovers of pleasure who hold to a form of godliness, but it's, it's only a form. There's no reality of Christ in their life or the gospel in their lives. Avoid them. Do not associate with them as though, as though we're preaching the same Jesus. Don't sit and continue listening to them. A couple weeks ago, our brother, he preached to us from the end of chapter two there, in, in verses 24 through 26, he, he reminded us that the, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in, in opposition. Well, wait a minute, Paul, are you, are you telling us something different now? Should we do that and not this, this and not that? It's not a contradiction, but you see, there, there, there comes a time in which the opposition is so firm, so persistent are these men in their sin that no matter how patiently, no matter how gently you deal with these pretenders, these men are brutal. And the response is to avoid them. Paul, he points to two grounds he gives Timothy two grounds for why he ought to avoid them. The first is in verse six. These men are dangerous and they're predatory. He writes there, he says, they enter into households. Now the, the New American Standard, it translates it that way, but the other translations, is just looking through commentaries, uh, it, it appears that other translations capture the sense a lot better. The ESV translates it as those who creep in to households. It's the idea of men who worm their way into homes. They sneak in. They creep in. They're actively seeking to worm their way through the weak points, through the cracks, into the homes and to captivate others. They're trying to do the same thing that verse 26 of chapter two says that the devil does to his victims. That's what these men are actively engaged in trying to do. These men are dangerous. 
Paul gives a description of their victims in this case. This is the middle of verse six. He writes, weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's not a general statement by Paul about about women and weakness in women. What he's talking about is these specific women in this instance, they're characterized as weak and they're prey for these men who are worming their way into their households. Paul says that two things are present in the lives of these particular women. One, they're overwhelmed and weighed down by their past sin. And then two, they're being continually led and controlled by present sinful desires. He doesn't tell us the specifics about uh, what it is that they're weighed down by or currently being controlled by, but it's a picture of a life that is controlled by sin. And it's left these women in a weakened and vulnerable state. And in this weakened state, they're susceptible to these men who are creeping in and beginning to spew false teaching, spew these lies. And these women, they sit and they learn and they learn and they learn and they learn and they learn. And yet by the very falseness of the teaching that they're listening to, they're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is, this is in direct contrast with what Paul told Timothy to do at the end of chapter two. He told Timothy that he must not be quarrelsome, kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. There's a contrast. That's what he told Timothy to do. But these men who hold to a form of godliness but, not, but deny its power, they bring in their false gospel that has no power to save. They sneak into the houses of the vulnerable and they take them captive and those who hear are never able to come to the knowledge of the truth because the knowledge of the truth is never set before them. Timothy is to avoid these men because they're dangerous and they're destructive Paul, he gives further description of these men in verse eight. He continues, this is the second of those two grounds for why he ought to avoid these men. In verse eight, he continues, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. So my initial reading, I don't know how many times in my life I've read Second Timothy, but I had to do a, a reminder and say, who in the world are Janus and Jambres? But in further describing the danger and the error of these men, Paul, he mentions those names and he, he reaches into a well-known archetype, a kind of person, sort of like we would say somebody's a Benedict Arnold. We know, oh, that person's a traitor. Janus and Jambres, those names had kind of become this. Uh, they're not names that are in the Bible, uh, but those names, they were known in non-biblical Jewish writings and they were, they were known in pagan writings. 
But those names, they're associated uh, with the Egyptian sorcerers who came out and tried to mimic God's miracles when Moses stood before Pharaoh. And so just, you know, Janus and Jambres, they stood against Moses and they serve as an example of those who oppose the truth. They're opposed to God's truth. And if you think back to the book of Exodus and those, those men who stood before Moses, what they did initially was to, to counterfeit the miracles that God had performed. It had the appearance of the same thing that Moses had done, but they were false miracles. They were deceitful. In fact, they were a means of hardening Pharaoh's heart. Their actions and their intent were opposition, even in the midst of presenting these miracles. They were opposed to Moses and against God and against God's truth. And Paul says, just as those men who stood before Moses opposed the truth, so these men, Timothy, these men right in front of you, they're depraved and they're rejected in regard to the faith. The ESV, again, it renders that they're disqualified in regard to the faith. The NIV says it this way in that verse. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. So in this sort of final denunciation here before verse 9, the, these men who oppose the truth their minds are depraved. They don't even know the difference between right and wrong. And in light of their lives, their teaching, and their relationship to, to the gospel, they have failed the test. They are disqualified. So Paul tells Timothy, avoid such men as these because they're dangerous, they're predatory, they oppose the truth, and they utterly fail the test in regard to genuine saving faith. Again, Paul, he wants Timothy to finish strong and so he reminds him of what is ahead and he exhorts Timothy to avoid these men. Brothers, we've, brothers and sisters, we've already seen how Paul's description of these men is like holding up a mirror in our world and in our country, in our city, and even in people we may know but you know all too well we're living in a day in which you can pull your phone out of your pocket and you can scroll and you can scroll through that whole list of abominable sins. You can just scroll through it and you can see every one of the things listed by Paul and you can easily find people who hold to a form of godliness and in the name of Jesus will support you in engaging in the most ungodly desires and behaviors imaginable. And they will heartily affirm that it is God's will that you do it. You can find a multitude of people who will encourage you in your sin in Jesus' name. few weeks ago I was in our church office listening as another one of our pastors was reading over arguments 
in favor of abortion by people calling themselves Christians. There are others who stand waving in one hand a banner that says Christianity and in the other hand are waving a banner that has all the letters and the numbers that are associated with our sexual and moral revolution that's taken place in our culture. Not only do we have people who profess to be Christians who also openly live lives that are a mirror of verses two through five, but they evangelize for it. They come after you. They come for your children. They're telling the church that we need to get in line with these things also. And there are a lot of people weighed down by all kinds of sin, entangled in all kinds of sin, who are listening and who are being taken captive. Church, it's, it's not only a question of, of what ought we to expect in these last days, but as Paul, he instructs Timothy, it's a question of how do we respond? What do we do? I mean, this was true in Timothy's day. It's certainly true in our, in our day. And Paul's answer to Timothy here is to avoid such men as these. But hear me, that's, that's not purely a passive act. What is implied is that Timothy will continue doing everything that Paul has instructed him to do thus far in this letter. He's already told Timothy all kinds of things to do in the pursuit of of fulfilling a faithful ministry. He's already just a few verses earlier. He's telling him now what to avoid. He already told him what to do. And a few verses earlier, he told him, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Pursue those things. But when it comes to these men, avoid such men as these. We stand firm. We, we don't go along with them. We don't submit to the yoke of ungodliness. We avoid them. Just as these men oppose the truth, we stand firm in the truth. We tell the truth about the Christian faith. We, compl- we proclaim the truth of the gospel We don't allow our lives to be characterized by the same type of hypocrisy that marks these men. We proclaim the gospel that sets free from captivity, not a false gospel that takes its hearers captive to Satan. Avoid them. And as you're doing this, Paul's reminder is to keep in mind the kind of people that we're dealing with in the last days. As you avoid them, possibly at work, whatever your job, if you refuse to go along, you may be reviled. If you say the wrong thing in a public forum, you may become the victim of malicious gossip. You may be brutalized by family members who think you're taking all this Jesus stuff too seriously. May be accused of being unloving, unaccepting, 
You may lose your job or be kicked out of a school. You may have your child disciplined in a public school setting if they take a stance for Christ and the truth. You may lose children who embrace a form of godliness but deny its power. They may be the ones who some of these false teachers have snuck in and taken captive and they may be now at odds with you when you are telling them the truth of God's word. When Paul told Timothy back in chapter two in verse 16 to avoid worldly and empty chatter, Paul also told Timothy what he ought to be doing. He wrote to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. As we avoid these in our day who oppose the truth and who are disqualified in regard to the faith, we diligently strive to present ourselves to God accurately handling the word of truth. They're a danger and so we stay far away from their lives we stay far away from their doctrine. We don't let it be confused for a second that what they're saying is the same thing that we're saying. They are not preaching Christianity. No matter what they say, it's a lie. It's a counterfeit. They're not preaching Christ. But Paul, he goes on. He doesn't leave Timothy without hope. Paul also seeks to encourage Timothy by way of a reminder of the outcome for these men. Look now in verse nine. He writes, but they will not make further progress. They will not make further progress. It's because he says in the next line, their folly will be obvious to all just as Janus's and Jambres's folly was also. Take heart, Timothy. This is what's in front of you and this is what you ought to do, but their progress will be stopped because their foolishness will become obvious to all who hear them just like Janus and Jambres, who imitated God's miracles and who sought to counterfeit God's wonders. You remember what happened to those men? They did that for a little while. They did their tricks, but they could only go so far and they were no match for God's power. Everything they did was only a counterfeit and very quickly they themselves were humbled and they were not even able to stand before Moses. In fact, even further, it got to the point they had to confess. I said, Pharaoh, don't you realize Egypt is destroyed? This is the very finger of God. They couldn't counterfeit for long. In the same way, it'll be obvious that these men are fools. It'll be obvious that what these men are preaching and teaching and embracing is empty and hollow and unable to produce a life that is transformed and one that is in accord with the power of God. These men, they offer an object of worship, but it's self, not God. 
These men offer a high view of something, but it's self and not God. They offer pleasure, but not joy. They offer brutality and recklessness, not peace and rest. And their counterfeits will be seen to be as empty and as hollow and as powerless as as they truly are. And everyone who they have taken in will be left empty, absolutely empty. Brothers and sisters, that that leaves the Christian church who has the life-saving gospel in a very good position to minister to those who have been fed drivel and are empty. We have the opportunity to stand ready with the life-saving gospel that will set them free from all of those things in which they have become ensnared. As we see all around us a world and a, and a country, a, a culture, a city, personal relationships that seem to be imploding into a black hole of sin, we feel the ever-increasing weight of a secular culture pressing in upon us and people in that culture calling themselves Christians and critiquing the church, the faithful church, Christ's bride as being very unchristian in the ways that we're acting because we're choosing to live as Christians. We feel that, those now exerting pressure upon us. Are we tempted to grow discouraged? Are we tempted to become discouraged because it looks like the enemy is winning? Inch by inch, moral standard by moral standard, domino after domino, are we tempted to become discouraged and lose heart and maybe even think that Satan is one? We tempted maybe to become angry. Say, well, I'll fight back. In our society, there's a couple of different extremes. When, when it comes to people in the church, there's, there's one extreme where you have those who have been inside the church for a long time and they see the world around us changing as it is and they love the prevailing evil. They embrace it wholeheartedly, they evangelize for it and they prove themselves to be disqualified in regard to the faith. But then there's the other extreme of those inside the church the other end to which we may be tempted. We see the skeletal remains of a society where there used to be things that we've read about in books like great awakenings and a biblical worldview and all that stuff, the Christian stuff that used to mark our society, right? But on that 
extreme end, there's panic. And they're tempted to reach out to anything that has some semblance of a former world and they rush to embrace it, whether it's explicitly Christian or not. You know, Satan, he'll, he, he will be fine with a moral culture so long as it is a Christless culture. He will be happy for you to go along with every moral virtue you can imagine so long as it is devoid of Christ. And if we stake our hope in taking back every square inch of moral ground in this country so that everything that's worrying your heart right now that our government may be doing, that celebrity preachers may be doing, whatever, if we take everything back that you think we've, we've lost and yet Christ is absent, we've only become twofold sons and daughters of hell. Are you tempted to latch on to, let's call, let's call them culturally conservative movements that may propose a society based on values that are opposed to all the wickedness that we just read in verses two through five? Movements that are nevertheless rooted in what could at best be described as a mere facade of Christianity? Brothers and sisters, Paul, he didn't tell Timothy to take heart because if we all just vote the right way, then we'll get a conservative emperor and when that happens, things won't be so bad and then, then you can have rest in your heart. Brothers and sisters, we have such a better place of rest for our hearts how is the folly of Janus and Jambres made obvious to all in the day of Moses? It was when God himself put his power on display. It was a move of God that humbled those men. It was the full display of the saving redemptive power of God as he brought his people out of the shackles and slavery of Egypt. It was God's truth that prevailed and it happened while the wicked Pharaoh was still on the throne. The encouragement to us brothers is that we have a hope so much better than anything that we can produce with our own hands or with our own strength. Our hope is in the God whose power cannot be copied, whose gospel, unlike these false teachers, God's gospel is actually the means by which they can be set free. And you can't counterfeit that. You can try. 
but it won't work. We know that in these last days, difficult times will come. We know and we see the world around us in the mirror of God's word. Brothers and sisters, avoid them. Do not go along with them. Resist them. Stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Cling to no other hope than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And take heart. Take heart. Take heart heart brothers and sisters because in God in God's time and by God's power all those who oppose the truth will be silenced and their folly will be obvious to all